Hi, I'm Janine, and you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, and this is Get the Funk Out. Each week for the past several weeks, I have kicked off the show with just giving a little bit of my own insight into how I'm handling the quarantine. And this week, I just want to mention it's really important to socialize, whether you're doing it through Zoom, phone calls. You can also get out there, perhaps sit in your driveway, invite a friend, obviously stay a safe social distance away, 6 to 10 feet, bring your lunch, whatever. But it's really important. We're social creatures, right? To stay connected to sometimes you need to see those faces, right? Because you miss them. But just stay safe and be smart. All right, kicking off this week's show is Beattie Wolf. And I've had her on the show before, but this week I'm going to talk about her latest documentary. And I thought we'd start the show with one of her songs, which I really love. This is Little Moth. Waited so long to find you. I'm holding this flame beside me, and they'll never know. See you like I do. Darling, I see you clearly in your basement hotel where you sold. Where you fell And the harsh light of truth Left you blinded in the sun But you wrote what you felt The red joy, the fine hell You couldn't lie, you left it bare And tattooed your despair And tattooed your despair Thank you 
blessed to have you For in the shadows you grew It was clear, no one knew Just how sharp every breath Felt to draw and rattle through But the light that you shone It will always burn on You served the world, my little moth At the sake of yourself At the sake of yourself All right, today we are in conversation with Beatty Wolf. Hi, Beatty. Nice to have you back on the show again. Lovely to be back, Janine. Thank you for sending me the information on your documentary, and congratulations. Tell me, how did that project come about? I loved it. Uh, well, that, I'm so happy you enjoyed it. It was something that really came about as a result of the um, exhibition I had of my album designs at the Victorian Albert Museum in London. Um, I was working with the curate, curatorial team that did the uh, big David Bowie show, and it was, you know, honestly one of my life highlights so far. So it was, it was a huge honor. Um, and so I was in conversation with the head of music for the Barbican, which is Europe's largest art center, and he'd come to see the exhibition. And he was really interested in us doing something together. You know, initially that was maybe a show or a series of shows, you know, something a bit more sort of traditional. Um, and then he just felt that that was somehow limiting. So, um, we, you know, the idea came up to actually, you know, have a, a documentary made about my work, uh, which they would commission and then we would screen it at the Barbican. And I would, you know, also perform and do a Q&A and stuff. So that was last year in London mm-hmm. uh, in this beautiful old cinema. Um, and yeah, and then recently, you know, Dzine, which is this um, sort of design uh, magazine and website, did a uh, digital premiere of the Barbican as part of a day they held around my work, sort of celebrating the stuff that I do. So it's online for everyone to see for the rest of the festival. And the documentary is called Orange Juice for the Ears. Did you come up with that title? Yeah, I did. I mean, it's funny because just before we started this, you know, you and I were having a, a chat about music and dementia and, right. and that stuff. And, and um, Orange Juice for the Years is actually a line taken from pretty much my favorite book, which is this book uh, by Oliver Sacks about the power of music. And in, in Musicophilia, the, the book's called Musicophilia, Sacks documents, you know, the impact of music across every neurological condition from autism to schizophrenia, Parkinson's to dementia. And I have my own uh, music dementia research project. So, you know, that's also part of kind of, you know, that's part of my work. So I love this line that he has, which is, you know, music is a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the year. Mm. And I felt that that was kind of really fitting for, you know, some of the stuff I'm doing. Um, The full title is Orange Juice for the Year's from space beams to anti-streams. So that sort of has the the music dementia part and then all the other weird, wacky, out-there stuff that I, I incorporate. I love it. 
okay, so that is my next question. You have to elaborate on the beams and space because I know about it now, but the listeners are wondering, okay, what is that exactly? Well, it's the short story is that um, I've been trying to find other ways of thinking about music in the digital age uh, for, for many years now. So, you know, when we moved from physical to digital, I felt that we, we lost a lot. And I'd grown up really being such a great lover of the physical listening experience. You know, my parents' record collection, those art forms, the ceremony, the stories, like that was how I spent my, my childhood. And I was imagining, well, what worlds can I create for my albums? What will they feel like? What will they look like? And by the time that was ready to happen, you know, a lot of what I loved had been taken out of the equation. So instead of just rejecting the digital experience, I I felt like I could think beyond it and combine the best of the old with the best of the new and create stuff that people had never seen before, you know, that would still have a tangibility, a ceremony, a story, but would also be, would be new. So it wouldn't just be retro, you know, it wouldn't just be nostalgia vinyl or, you know, digital streaming. Um, and so as part of that, you know, exploration, I've created all these different um, first-of-a-kind album formats from a theatre for the palm of the hand to a, a jacket woven with my music, which is a, another way of presenting the record jacket, uh, an anti-stream from the quietest room on earth, as literally the antithesis of our current streaming experience, mm-hmm. um, a space broadcast, uh, through the horn that proved the Big Bang with the scientist who won the Nobel Prize for discovering cosmic microwave radiation, which was the sound at the birth of our universe. So everything is, to- every exploration has been entirely different, and they're long stories. You know, I'm not going to, I know oh, yeah. we have limited time now, <laughs> but the, the, the documentary does, you know, go into some of it. Um, but yeah, the space broadcast was a couple of years ago and it was of my last record through this incredible historic instrument and you know I heard recently from this friend that this scientist um, astronomer that the the music is now halfway uh, on its way to Proxima Centauri so um, it's it's always nice to have that update but yeah amazing how they even know that (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah Totally. Well, I mean, I guess that's what, you know, that's the world of astronomy. Yes. It is fascinating. It is so fascinating. Now, you were in the quietest room. That What is the name of that place? The, the studio? Yes, it's the, the Bell Labs, Bell Labs. Anechoic Chamber. Um, and it was, it was the quietest room on Earth for mm-hmm. a number of decades. Um, it was the original the very first wedge-based anechoic chamber. And essentially what it is is a room without echo, you know, and we, we've we been in, you know, some of us have been into those kind of sound chambers before um, or anti-sound chambers. But what was so special about this room was the history of it and and the fact that it really, you know, Guinness Book of World Record, quietest room, it had that, you know, record. Um but the fact that, you know, Helen Keller experienced silence there for the first time, that that's where they built foil microphones, where they discovered psychoacoustics and 
um, and rogue frequencies. And it was a room that was so core to our understanding of a sound, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to go in there uh, uh, first a number of years ago, and I was told, you know, you're going to freak out, you're going to hear the blood rushing through your veins. Yes. You know, um, and I was, because I was there working with Bell Labs on another project at the time, and instead I just had the complete opposite experience and fell in love with this space and fell in love with the sound of the space mm-hmm. and, and the silence. And it really made me realize, you know, how much noise we have around us all the time and how our sensory systems are just so frazzled and, you know, the, the big thing that is, you know, part of that dialogue is how music and art have become part of that background noise. So seeing this chamber as the ultimate listening room and the ultimate place to kind of reconnect with the ceremony and with oneself and with some deeper experience, that was, uh, for me, that was the perfect place to stage this anti-stream from. You know, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking... You're pro- probably one of the few people that got in there and felt like that, like you loved the silence and you could connect with yourself and your thoughts. Do you find that you, as a creative person, you definitely need that quiet time away from all the noise because that's where you thrive and come up with new ideas? Definitely, uh, 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that it's even a bit contrary to me in some ways to... You have to get on stage and talk and play and yeah. all of that side of it. You know, I think at heart I'm I'm an introvert in many ways, um, and I definitely I definitely need that space and that silence. You know, for my work, but also for my peace of mind. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think all of the all the all the ideas I've had so far have have definitely come from you know that sense of sort of Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think life is so wildly fast-paced and busy and we're constantly being pulled in so many directions with our phones or distractions that when you do take the time, like I take every morning, I'll take a long walk now because of the quarantine, but I'll take a long walk and I just get inside my head and think about things. And that's the time where I can really feel the most relaxed and I feel very creative in starting my day. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to do every day. I do the same. You know, I would always walk, I'd go for hikes and walks, you know, before this. Mm-hmm. But that has become a, the, that's become the one daily activity that, you know, I just don't miss. Um, because also I think right now, you know, nature is, feels more alive than ever. And it just feels like such a, a privilege and a luxury. You know, the thing about this lockdown is, I think it's made us, or it's made me at least, you know, really reflect on, on what matters and sort of celebrate a lot of the little things that we would be too busy for usually. Yes. Um, and, you know, nature is such a huge thing that gets overlooked. Um, but actually it's the source of so much, you know, joy, inspiration, wonderment. So... I, I love my hikes, my walks as well. I know. I, I need it every day. It's like brushing my teeth. I, I do it seven days a week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even do brush my teeth that regularly. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, tell me, because um, 
I'm in the more I talk to you, and this is the second time I've had you on the show. What were you like as a kid? Because I, I feel like I could never see you kind of vegetating in front of a TV unless you were getting creative ideas. I mean, what were you like? Well, I, you know, it's funny because I kind of feel like I am today. Like, I don't feel there's much difference. If anything, how I am, how I was as a kid and how I am now are very similar, but then there was the, the, the weird stuff that happened in between. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I don't know, I just spent all of my time, and, and that's not, you know, I, I did watch TV, like my mum didn't really let us watch television, but you know, we could watch Sesame Street, that was the one thing we could watch, and that was a joy, um, and you know, it's mm-hmm. partly why Jim Henson, but it's not the only reason, but why he's such a, a big inspiration of mine, um, but yeah, I think it was just storytelling, and you know, putting on plays and writing books and doing radio shows and writing songs and, you know, dressing up as ninjas and running across my roof and, you know, just, it was constant, like, imagination and I, I just loved it. I loved, you know, I loved spending my time in that way Um, and obviously, you know, being a lover of storytelling and then discovering music, which I discovered in terms of writing music, I discovered pretty early on, you know, around seven or eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was definitely like, it wasn't that it was the best form, but there was something so perfect and just magical about writing these stories and then being able to set them to music. And and so that was sort of the the moment where I thought, yeah, this is what makes sense to me. This is what just feels like I don't have to think about it. You know, it's mm-hmm. effortless. Um, that's great. So, yeah, that's kind of how I was as a kid. And I, and I was pretty, not solitary, but I, I could just spend a huge amount of time entertaining myself or, do, you know, sitting there. I have this memory of being in nursery and we were, I guess we were all, you know, three or four at that age. And, and the whole classroom was running around and like, you know, running outside and <laughs> playing games and playing house and playing all these things. And I just remember sitting there in front of this, uh, you know, like little kids easel doing this, this painting, this picture, completely absorbed. And that consciousness, you know, I still, I still feel that so much now. And sometimes I'm like, damn, I probably had better concentration as a three year old. But you know, as we get older, a lot of adults will, will say, well, I'm not creative. Or, you know, I'm too busy to be creative. But creativity is so important, especially right now. I I agree. And I think that, you know, I really think the education system is a lot to blame for why people feel as if they have to choose between, you know, being scientific or being creative or being, you know, good with numbers or good with colors. It's like... I think we're so much more, I don't know, I think that whole process of limiting ourselves, of putting ourselves in boxes, which is something that happens from a very early age, you know, it's like how we define ourselves, uh, you know, as part of this kind of slightly factory, you know, type system. And I think that, you know, we're all so much more capable of being, you know, multi- fields, multi-talented, multimedia, multi-dimensional, and we often just 
uh, put the shutters up and then that thought becomes, you know, a reality. It's like then you just, you, you really think, no, I can't do this. And, and right. yeah, and I kind of think that, I don't know, I think I've just been very lucky because I was always so determined that, you know, I would, that what I, I felt passionate about was something I wanted to, you know, what my passion was should be also my life's work. And I was very lucky to sort of pursue the passion and find that actually the career kind of followed, you know, um, without having to, to do anything that, you know, was other people were saying, oh, no, it's, you know. You can't do that. Yeah. Yeah, ex- exactly. So, but but I also understand that for a lot of people it's, you know, there's, there's obviously there's anxiety about, you know, making, being able to make a living from particularly, you know, the arts. Right. So it, it, it is hard and, and sometimes it is easier just to, to self-impose those limits, I guess. You're right. You're right. I because people are a lot of are very critical of what they can and cannot do, and there's a lot of negative self talk. I mean, I know for me, I've written stuff and then just put it on my desk and it collects dust, and then I'll look at it two years later and think, why didn't I do this? Mm. You know? Yeah, yeah. And that's and, and I think that's a big one as well. I think you know that sort of being you know that that tendency to be very hard on oneself, but then very sort of forgiving with everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, I I absolutely have that, and you know there have been things that I haven't even, even been able to watch, you know, or listen to because I was like convinced they were so bad, <laughs> and then and then I come back to them a couple of years later, and and it's just crazy that I you know I think to myself like wow that's just crazy I was I was so perfectionistic, um, yeah. but I do think there's an element of you know, not to say about being hard on oneself at all, but I do think that, you know, by constantly refining and redefining and, you know, not analyzing, but sort of never being complacent. You know, I, I the thing I felt was it's it's always about the, the journey and it's never about saying, oh, well, I did that, so, you know, that should carry me through for the next five years sure so there's an there's an element where i think it is healthy to kind of constantly reflect and figure out what you could have done differently or better and not to beat yourself up but just that process of really further sort of defining what it is that you're you know you you want to say yes did you ever get involved in a project where you thought what did i get myself into this is i can't i don't know if i could do this or did you just go Full on and say, I, I'm going to figure this out. I'm passionate about it. Well, I, I think I've been very lucky because every project I've done, almost all of them have been self-chosen. You know, Great. so it was always a case of, um, or it has been a case of me having an idea and um, and seeing, you know, how that uh, that could be realized, and then finding, you know sometimes not needing specific people but they're oftentimes needing collaborators to come in and get involved um but as a result it's always been something i've been you know completely wanting to do um within that there have you know naturally been roadblocks or times when it looked like something was going to get pulled off course and 
and in in those moments, you know, I can feel like yeah, exasperated and and sort of you know, I find that very challenging. But that has actually been the way that I've learned that you have to, if it's your vision, you have to oversee it. You know, in every in every aspect. Yes. And even if even if it means that you know you're telling a hundred you know, engineers with PhDs that you don't want to incorporate something that they're trying to, you know, experiment with. And sometimes you have to be the unpopular person, you Mm -hmm. know, in the room. Um, But there was never any sense of me being able to compromise on something if I didn't feel it was right. Um, And so in that way, you know, that's really been a a sort of defining characteristic that... um, I'm very, you know, I love the, the project so much that I won't let anything kind of uh, dilute them. That's great. That's fantastic. So I know we have to wrap up. Would you give any advice for people that um, they would like to, you know, go for a project they've been thinking about, they want to do something creative? I mean, I feel like now's the time. Yeah, I think, you know, I think... Right now, we're sort of living in a time where it feels as if time and space have expanded in many ways. And I think that is a wonderful sort of creative um, space to be in because actually the, the, the restrictions or the, you know, the limitations or all these things that would be on your day-to-day life aren't really there in the same way if you're lucky enough to be in a stable environment, you know, which I feel super lucky to be in. So I think, yeah, you've got to see this as a as a kind of gift, you know, to really go into something that you're super passionate about and explore it. Um, now is the time. Um, and I think that, you know, within all of this, I think a, a really important thing, something that is behind everything that I do is, you know, the why, the intention behind it. And I think when you know why you're doing it, that informs everything. It makes it so much easier, you know, but where it can get a bit confusing is if, if someone's asked you to do something and you feel you should, and but, you know, it doesn't feel quite right for you, but you're, you know, you're sort of in some ways, I don't know, trying to find excuses for doing it. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to know why and, if there isn't a good why, don't do it, you know. Great um, advice. But if there is, then then just follow that. Great advice. So where can people find out more about you? Well, my my name is B.T. Wolf, B-E-A-T-I-E-W-O-L-F-E. Unusual name. Uh, my parents <laughs> gave me a, a unique name. And so, so. fitting. So fitting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um... So on, you know, the on everything, so any platforms or, like, online, uh, beachywolf.com is obviously where everything is kind of in one place. Um, and, and yeah, you can check out the documentary there or um, via DZine, uh, via their site. Fantastic. Well, congratulations. I loved it. Oh, I'm so happy. I'm very happy you enjoyed it.